As I went walking down the docks one bright and sunny day, heave away, my Johnny's heave away. I spied a full rigged ship and she was looking oh so gay. And away, oh, the boys were all bound to go. And I shipped aboard the morning before the break of day. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, uh, here we are. Uh, we're back again. We are on the air. Uh, we are on the uh, we're on the YouTube, aren't we, Aaron? Yeah, although I'm not usually putting this part. It's usually just the interview. But based on Daniel's response to your intro, it might just be worth putting the clip on there. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, you gave me stage direction on what I was supposed to do with my face before I started, well, I, and that I just know. that just so when, me. I just I just I'll haven't heard this to that. Daniel. I just haven't heard that voice since I was a kid and you were waking me up for school and all I wanted to do was keep sleeping. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that, oh, that's, wait, that's, that's how he would wake voice, you up. It's the same Time voice. Time to get up. I hated that voice. <laughs> <laughs> that voice, by the uh, way, that you don't hate is the voice of my son, Daniel. Uh, Daniel uh, and his sweet wife, Jenny, and their two kids, Charlie and Ella, live in northeast Florida, in Amelia Island, just north of Jacksonville. And they felt it necessary this last week to leave Florida. Can't imagine why. Yeah. And uh, so uh, we, we, were, we were spared the worst of Hurricane Irma, but it was a good reason to come up and visit for a week. Yeah. So we've had a great time here playing with the kids and hanging out. I've had some time with my boy. And Daniel and I do communicate on a regular basis, not just because we're related, but because we also work together Mm -hmm. in the engineering business, an engineering business that has been very, very slow in recent years. Until now. Uh, Our business uh, involves the investigation of property losses, mainly for insurance companies. And Florida went through the longest period between major hurricanes since 1850. Uh, but that drought was broken just last week, and I feel uh, bad for all those folks who suffered. Uh, I feel a little guilty for having, and somewhat responsible for having prayed for the he, hurricane. He prayed it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Daniel and Jenny and the kids got here on Saturday. We're recording this on Wednesday, mm-hmm. and you're getting ready to pack it up and head home tomorrow. Yep. What do you hear about the house? Uh, Well, we got 15 and a half inches of rain, and there were some winds around 100 miles an hour recorded in our area. But uh, our house survived. Everything's fine. Everything's dry. Um, Our cat, unfortunately, is still alive and well. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so we're just going to round up with the, the herds and hordes of people who are driving south again. Oh, the roads oh, home are going to be, be rough. Crazy. Oh, it's terrible. But it'll be good to get home. It feels like the population of Franklin doubled with uh, Florida refugees. An awful lot of Florida plates in town. I feel like the population of Franklin doubles every time I come to visit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that happens too. Wow. So you actually did notice refugees coming in from down south. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. The hotels filled up. They remarked, uh, the guy, my Starbucks guy remarked on it, you know, that... I got a lot of Florida refuge. You know, it was everything got busy. So it's been incredibly gracious. We had a couple buy us 
uh, breakfast on the way down in Alabama. Tell this story. It's a great story. Well, um, my wife and I, we uh, were driving. Uh, we stopped over in Georgia. Uh, we made it supposed to be two five-hour drives, and we have two kids. So it was about two seven-hour drives. <laughs> and uh, we stopped off in Alabama to get breakfast. And I've, I've always made fun of Alabama, and I'm sorry for it now. Um, it was... It was we drove through Birmingham, and we stopped for breakfast. And uh, we parked, and as we were walking in, a couple, I guess, saw our license plate and asked us what part of Florida we were from. And we stopped and talked briefly with them. And uh, I just told her as we left, it's been a long few days. And we went, and we sat, and ate our breakfast. And uh, as we were wrapping it up, a uh, waitress came by and asked if we were the couple with the Florida license plates. And we said yes, and she handed us a gift card for this specific restaurant. I don't remember the name of it now, but it was it was amazing. Um, and it was a $100 gift card for this restaurant. Wow. And uh, on the back it just said, we're praying for you. And we looked around, and the couple had already left. I assume it was the couple we had talked to. So, uh, yeah, it was great. That After was cool. you know a generous tip, we had $50 left on the card, and we left it for the next pair of refugees that the waitresses saw come through. So wow. Alabama is wonderful. I love that state. Alabama. Good people. Good people. <laughs> you sweet home. Yeah. And it was great for my for my son to see too. Um mm. to see generosity like that is see it in person and to experience How old it. How's he now? Uh four and a half. Wow. Going on forty five. Cool. <laughs> I'm I'm raising an old curmudgeon, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that is fantastic. Well, uh, any news, Nate? Anything people need to know about the upcoming Samson recharge? Oh yeah. Well, there's lots. First of all, the uh, the new ebook come, uh, comes out today. It's available today from discipleship.org. The book is called Beyond Accountability: The Life Changing Power of Authentic Friendship. It's a quick read, just fifty pages. You can download it for free at discipleship.org. Uh, tomorrow night, I guess by the time this post will be passed, the uh, Heart of Man film will have debuted nationwide with a 30-second uh, promo for Samson in the pre-roll. We've got that big event coming up. Uh, well, I mean, it's a small event, but it's big in importance. Uh, I think we'll have uh, maybe 60, so 75 short, guys from around the country. Uh, for the Pirate Monk Recharge Weekend here in Middle Tennessee. It'll be held at beautiful Henry Horton State Park. We'll be staying in the lodge there until the rooms are full, and then we have some other, uh, a few guys can stay off-site. Uh, I've been talking to some great musicians who'll come on Saturday night. Um, we will, and and uh, Jeff Schulte, who was the guest on our last podcast, Man, what a what a terrific teacher, mentor, a real coach when it comes to emotional uh, connectedness. Jeff will be with us on Friday night, and uh, on Saturday it'll be the debut just for these Samson guys of the brand new uh, Silas app and the uh, brand new Samson website with virtual meetings. It's freaking amazing. Uh, we're going to beta test it right there uh, for those who want to get involved. Uh, and, and so that before we roll it out to the rest of the Samson community, we want to identify and fix as many bugs as we can, refine it, make it perfect. And then 
on November 8th and 9th. Uh, Samson House will be co-sponsoring, along with uh, 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 Radical Mentoring, the men's ministry track at the National Disciple Making Forum uh, in Brentwood, Tennessee. Uh the registration for that is already running three times uh, the registration last year. Uh, we will be presenting, kind of showcasing, explaining Samson to church leaders from around the country. And you can come to the conference if you like. Uh, anybody's eligible to come, just go to discipleship.org. And if you put in the promo code Samson Society, you actually get a 20% refund. Wow, 20%. 20%, you betches. So there you go. There's all the ways to connect mm-hmm. in real face-to-face. And uh, please. Yeah, yeah, we would love to hear from you, by the way. Please send us an email with uh with your questions your comments your encouragements your rebuttals uh anything to pirate monk podcast at gmail.com and we'll remind you again during the last segment which Nate has uh forgotten we're not in right now but it is a good reminder in the first segment as well <laughs> we would like to hear from you that's right Send- i'm set to wrap it up here Send us your emails. But before we wrap it up, let's get to the interview with our special guest, Science Mike McCarg. Uh, Good stuff coming up on the Pirate Monk podcast. back to the Pirate Monk podcast. I'm very excited today. We have one of my favorite guests in the past. He has never disappointed. And if he disappoints today, then the disappointment shall be deep and wide. <laughs> no pressure, though. Absolutely no pressure. <laughs> Mike McCarg is here with us today. How are you doing, Mike? Oh, man. Uh, good. Good. L- little sleepy, but good. Now, you just moved... From across the country to California, what a month ago? Like a Less month than, and a half, yeah. And how? How? I'll just ask right out. Are you enjoying California right now? It is not like the weather you would have been coming from, right? I mean, the oppressive uh, predictability of the weather is so <laughs> tough to deal with. I mean, today, 
I just watched the news. It's going to be another sunny, breezy, 77-degree day <laughs> with no humidity. And, uh, you know, you just start to long for <laughs> some kind of seasonal variation. I'm lying. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I actually want to overdub the word politics in there so it can be the oppressive predictability of politics. And I oh, watched the is. news today and I it will, will be tell you another miserable day. <laughs> the politics. politics are more uh, predictable here than Tallahassee. But <laughs> wow, nice. Well, since we last talked here, it's like: are you uh, are you liberal or are you uh, a socialist or are you an anarcho communist? Like, there's no question. It's <laughs> yeah. a question of how far left you are, not if you're on the left. <laughs> it's it's funny. We uh, we started another little church. 20 minutes over the hill from where we live and on one side of the hill 80% of the population voted for Donald Trump on the other one 80% for Hillary Clinton and I never realized what a confusing thing it would be to give the exact same sermon from one week to the other <laughs> to that big of a spread like that really messed with my mind at first oh yeah didn't realize the little comments you would make one way or the other that you're like oh nope that's inappropriate yeah so it was Definitely. good good learning experience so since we last talked you have put out a book when when was this put out finding god in the waves it uh one year ago uh today actually really well, and wow. today is the one year anniversary of uh finding god in the waves the paperback comes out october the 3rd which is a, a lower priced way to get the book and includes a group discussion guide in the back we didn't realize it would be a book that people did <laughs> like small group discussions around, mm. but that happened. So my publisher was cool and, and, and hired somebody to do a really great discussion guide. But, uh, yeah, it's been a year now and, uh, it's been nuts. Well, now, because I was unaware of this, we have brought a reader in. So Daniel, you actually have read the book. Uh, I have actually listened to Mike read the book. Oh, man. <laughs> Audio, uh, yeah, my father That's bought it for That's on a bridge. Me. You got every word. Yes. <laughs> I've, yeah, he, uh, he bought it for me, um, well, I guess it was no more than a year ago. No, um, yeah. It was in February. Mom was in the hospital. Yep. yep. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, training for a race and going on a lot of long runs. So he bought it for me to listen to while I ran. And uh, hmm. I just chewed through it. Well, you did. So, so give us give us some of your thoughts or any questions, things that maybe he should fix before the paperback book comes out. <laughs> I think they've printed a lot already, but we'll see. It's never too late. It's. Just, I'll tell you how I knew on. the book had made a made an impact on Daniel. Uh, he came to care for his mom while I was speaking in Alaska, uh, and when I came back, I found and I didn't understand why it was there. It took me a while. Daniel had to explain it to me. He asked me whether I'd found the painting in my office. And uh, Daniel had actually bought a copy of Starry Night for me, which now hangs in my oh, office. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And on the back of it, I wrote in Sharpie, this is real. Mm. That, yeah. was, that was the part of the book that struck me the most, I think. I was going to say, I feel like this is a reference from the book, so I'm um, left out entirely of what's yes. happening right now. So <laughs> um, fill us in on well, the starry night. Um, uh, Mike had gone through um, a brief history of Van Gogh's life um, and uh, how he had uh, worked in a church and had kind of put uh, 
the church or put the poor in front of his needs and it really didn't go over well with the church and uh and 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 then he he talks later about how uh how when Mike saw the painting that uh and all of this this landscape the lights of the church were out and um he just kind of painted it as an as as what he saw and and he and then Mike said, you know, now ask yourself is starry night true? Um and as a way to reference um or compare, I guess, uh the way that I don't know I should have Maybe, maybe, let's put this into some little context. So, yes. So, uh, for let me talk a little bit to the listeners about Daniel and me. Yeah, I should probably. So, I was a pastor when Daniel was growing up. Uh, he was born when I was in seminary, and uh, I was also an active sex addict. Hmm. Um, I've been in recovery now close to twenty years. Daniel is now thirty. Let's see if you get this right. Six years old. Yes. 36 years old. Um, he is no longer a church attender. No. No. Um, and so his kind of, but has not lost uh, an interest in spiritual things, but the yeah. pat answers of Christianity ring hollow. Yeah. I found more comfort in uncertainty recently. Okay. You could say. So he's been down that, you know, he's, he's, and I've traveled kind of the, the side roads myself in faith. The recovery really redefined faith for me, uh, enlivened it in new ways, while other ways just didn't seem to work anymore. So, so Mike's book, Finding God in the Ways, where Mike talks himself about, you know, his journey, uh, it kind of resonated with us and it started a, a helpful conversation that's still underway. Yeah. And the, one of the one of my bigger problems with uh, faith, the faith that I'd grown up with, was the Bible and how it was supposed. Um, I a lot of the you know the little literal interpretations applied today, and, my, and to go back to Mike's to the painting of Starry Night, of he kind of describes the Bible as, and if I'm taking liberties liberties here, let me know. I um, love this. The it describes the Bible as a work of art of people who are trying to paint an image of their God with their words, and in the same way that you can't judge the truthfulness of Van Gogh's vision in Starry Night um, to argue literal truth in the Bible is to miss the point. Hmm. And that was that helped me reconcile with a lot of problems <clears throat> that I had uh, kind of stumbled into uh, through my childhood and you know young adult life. Yeah. So I've seen over and over that uh, well in my own life first, but the way that so many American Protestants or Western Protestants really uh, end up having a faith crisis that hinges primarily on the way they read the Bible. And because of how we structure um, our relationship and study of the Bible in the church, mm -hmm. people aren't aware that there's any other interpretive lens for the Bible. So instead of saying, I might have a problem with how I'm interpreting this work, people instead go to, there's a problem with the Bible itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and if you listen online to the always reasonable 
debates between Christians and skeptics. Uh, especially in the comment section. Especially in the comment section. You'll see this energy uh, where they are debating the Bible, but from the same interpretive reference frame, and therefore ignoring the vast majority of Christian breadth and depth and scholarship relating to the Bible. Mm-hmm. And... Um, well, this can I take from there a, a little turn? We could talk more about your book, which would be good for uh, promotional reasons, but it's been out a year, so there is no obligation for this. We can get into the real stuff. I'm into whatever. Okay. <clears throat> I recently... I'm less interested in having conversations because conversations are getting annoying as far as people's just dichotomy, which side of the, which team are you on? And then just, there's no conversation and it's getting Mm -hmm. annoying. So I am having more fun having conversations about conversations. Uh, So we'll go real meta. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And, and something that uh, a guy at church, um, turned me on to was the uh, the Brain and Creativity Institute at USC with their backfire effect uh, study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to get your thoughts on it. So let me just lay out what I understand, and then you can fix it, because you're good <laughs> at making things take strange turns. Okay. So <clears throat> USC does a study where they're putting people in the MRI, scanning their brains while asking them uh, or talking about different areas of belief uh, and seeing what happens in the brain. When is it flexible? When is it not flexible? And uh, what changes in the brain uh, when your beliefs are not flexible? So what they found were there were some core ideas that the brain responded differently when you were challenged, mostly revolving around politics and religion, like the two big ones. And I guess the the most simplistic way to explain it, and you can fix this, is that when a person was confronted with information that contradicted some core belief, all of a sudden there was way increased activity in the amygdala where it was like, oh, I'm facing something that is actually physically threatening. Mm-hmm. And so they would start to not think but fight to protect that idea and the better the information was coming at them, the more reasonable, the more they would fight against it. Hmm. So as I was reading this and different articles and people writing about it, I thought this is every conversation about politics where you watch two people facing each other and words are coming out of each other's mouths, but they are not talking. Mm -hmm. They are just now defending something that somehow their brain at neurological level, is desperate to protect. So I have some questions about that, but correct what I just said and make it better. No, I think you nailed it. Um, The backfire effect is one of dozens of documented cognitive biases in Homo sapiens, Um, and a a nasty one. Um, Its name comes from uh, how an attempt to persuade someone backfires. And when you said uh, certain beliefs trigger the backfire effect more, it is beliefs that you have a deeper emotional investment in, 
which is typically concepts that come down to your identity or your social grouping. Yes. Um, so your, your, your religious ideas. beliefs become a keystone or a cornerstone in your community formation, and your political beliefs do as well. Um, we are at a unique period in modern American history, and uh, the degree to which social connections are starting to mirror political affiliation um, that started in the Congress is now spreading to the public. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just as you said, uh, once your amygdala is active, you no longer have the energy budget in your brain to keep the analytical parts of your mind functioning. So uh, in in a high state of amygdala activation, you're pretty much unable to learn um, at least conceptually, you could still learn in terms of physical conditioning, right? Ouch, that shocked me. But you're not going to learn uh, in, in sort of a linguistic manner. Um, so that's, it's interesting, you're talking about the social connection. So if I believe something, I, I believe it because I think it's true at an informational level, at a reality level. Um, yeah, but for the most part. let's not That's, miss this social con- – I have a quick question. Does does this research seem to imply that we are um, by nature tribal? Oh, absolutely. We're an incredibly tribal species. Um, mm-hmm. And you're seeing a new tribalism set in, basically a, a balkanization of the previous pan-American identity right. is now splintering into – Smaller social groupings with, you know, fundamentally incompatible views of reality. And I would say, based on my understanding of cognitive neuroscience, we don't hold beliefs because we think they're true. Mm-hmm. We don't hold beliefs because we've assembled a certain amount of evidence that supports them. Our natural inclination is to believe the things that people that hold our social identity believe. Yes. Okay. Now, I think that's true, but I don't think... Many people admit to that. Oh, they no one admits to it. Right. Absolutely. So that's <laughs> that's where I don't care if it's somebody arguing for what a Bible verse means or saying that I'm an atheist, so I don't have any faith. You confront either of those, and I'm going to stick with it, not because of the veracity of the information, but because if I change my mind, it will destroy my entire social structure. Bingo. Right? Yeah. If I all of a sudden think that homosexuality isn't central to a person's faith, well, then what will the people in my church think? Will I have to go to a a gay disco and I don't want to? Like, what are the social implications of new information? And just admitting that, like, this has been a big deal for me, admitting that I hold on to many truths based on social fabric, not information or truth of information, uh, I think is a very humbling Thing. Yeah. Well, and some people might go, well, I don't do that. I, I never agree with my tribe's view on something and like start to pat themselves on the back. And it's like, no, you're a nonconformist. That's your function uh, so, within the tribe. So you, you form your beliefs in opposition to the tribe. Uh-huh. But that doesn't mean they're like original thoughts based on evidence. It just means that's your wiring. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay, you so know, let's, let's, let's talk about this. If it's, if it's this... Uh, 
this makes it very frustrating to be in good conversations with people when you know this is how we're all going to be acting. So it's a strange little drama that's being played out. First, some people seem uh, that they can overcome this a little easier than others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious as to the why is that? What's going on with people that are more flexible with core ideas? And two, can everybody get better at this or is it just the way it is? So we have a system and a methodology for checking and pushing back on cognitive biases. Um, several. One's called logic. Mm-hmm. One's called philosophy. One's called science. Mm -hmm. These rigorous manners of thinking are designed to give you the tools to interrogate your own narrative and to publish your thoughts in a way that invites other people who don't have your same blind spots because they're not you to interrogate your thinking as well. And the process of becoming educated and informed scientifically, logically, or philosophically uh, creates a feedback loop wherein you are not so harshly penalized for being wrong. Right. Uh, that's just part of the process. And it, it becomes like uh, uh, you become desensitized to the fear of being incorrect. And then you take someone like me, I feel like I've been fundamentally incorrect about the nature of ultimate reality twice in a row. Mm -hmm. So I start to hold my ideas more loosely. Uh, I start to become less obsessed with and in love with the way I describe the world and more interested in exploring the world itself. Um, and I think, yeah, I think anyone can learn that. Uh, I would say um, the more... Like if you're a believer, uh, the more biased you are toward like a prefrontal activation when you contemplate God, probably the easier it is to become a flexible with ideas person. Okay, Expl um, explain those that with different words. The sure. more prone you are to prefrontal <laughs> the, the, activation. The more, yeah, the, 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 the front part of the brain right behind your forehead is the prefrontal cortex. It's the seat of analytical reasoning and your executive agency. Mm. Um, and when you, some people are just more prone to think with that part of the brain. These people tend to be drawn in religious contexts to theology more than experiential worship. Um, and, uh, don't get me wrong. They can back themselves into a cognitive corner quite effectively, but in general, that sort of, uh, inclination makes it easier for you to develop the discipline of holding your ideas more loosely. Yeah. How does that all fit into what we now have of a world of alternative facts where... Oh, man. It's... it's yeah, that's that's a problem. Um, I, and I don't know that... I mean, I can, like, riff with my opinion. I don't know that anyone knows the solution or how deep the rabbit hole goes mm -hmm. in this age of alternative facts and media bubbles. I mean, the Flat Earth Society is growing. <laughs> Unbelievable. There's a, there's, a, there's a serious movement of people who assert that a spherical Earth is 
a government conspiracy. That's some serious alternative facts, right? Like, all we need to do is position people at a few different spots on the Earth's surface, have them point a camera directly up at night, and take a picture of the constellations, and compare those constellations, and you will get a difference in the sky that can only and exclusively be described by a round Earth, right? A dome over a flat Earth wouldn't create that difference. Mike, I, of I feel like you're trying to convince us here. So, and- no, I like, but here's why. Here's why. Here's why. So when I say that, flat Earthers get the backfire effect, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so when we're dealing with alternative facts, uh, the kind of dialogue. Uh, we would attempt, which is based on evidence, is impossible. Luckily, there um, there's a better approach. Um, fact-based reasoning is pretty evolutionary, evolutionary evolutionarily speaking, very new. Mm-hmm. It's not an old feature of the brain. It's not a very old feature of human culture. About as long as we've been able to vocalize. Um, and use language, there has been a far more powerful way to convince human beings to hold different ideas, and Brute that's with force. story. Oh, right. Story. I thought it was violence. I was so excited. <laughs> there was a time in history. Violence is a good way to get people to stop talking, um, <laughs> assuming you're the most powerful. Um, but story um, bypasses so many of these cognitive defense mechanisms so uh, if, you know, pick issue X, if, if we're talking about, you know, the death penalty, that's something people have very deep, deep perspectives on. If you were trying to convince someone that the death penalty is a good thing, you might tell the story of a family who uh, their children died because someone killed them who was unrepentant, mm-hmm. who then spent X number of years in prison, got out of the system, and then killed again. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. There are facts in that story, but if I just present them as statistics, people go, whoa, backfire. If you tell an engaging story, our consciousness is based on story. Mm-hmm. We are a protagonist in a story our brain tells itself. And so when you tell a story, you actually shift someone's perspective into another person's consciousness, even if the person is fictional. Uh, And then on the other hand, if I wanted to tell, you know, if I wanted to convince you that the death penalty is immoral, I would tell you the story about someone who was wrongfully convicted and executed, who was a good father, who, who whatever you value as a good person in society, I would make sure I found a person that mirrored that. Mm-hmm. And then I would tell a story about injustice that occurred with the death penalty. And in both of those situations, you could speak to a group with opposed ideas. And if you told the story artfully and emotively, you would, they would engage in the facts presented within it. Um, and so I don't spend a lot – the way I work, if you hear me uh, talking facts and figures and conversing – I'm either talking to people who've done the relatively difficult work of becoming more flexible with AI ideas, or I'm preaching to the choir. I'm right. giving them language to understand where they are. 
If I'm trying to persuade someone across the aisle, so to speak, that's when you hear me tell stories. Mm. Um, and uh, I've practiced storytelling as a discipline so intentionally for that reason. Uh, you just, it just actually works. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. Which is kind of a beautiful thing since God built that into us and then he gave us a story yes. through which to reveal himself, which Absolutely. would but be the when, only only way for uh, the only vehicle for the infinite to come into this anthropomorphic idea. And when we read the Bible as an encyclopedia rather than a storybook, we misread it? Well, I think there's parts of the Bible that the authors intended to be an ancient analog to an encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. I think I think numbers was probably meant to be yeah. <laughs> encyclopedic in nature. I think the Bible contains a lot of different kinds of documents that should be read differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that means um, you do the Bible a little bit of a disservice if all you ever do is take it off the shelf and read it alone without reading any scholarship about the Bible. Now, I'm not saying we elevate scholarship to the same level we elevate Scripture, but it does help us better interpret who the author of a given work in the Bible was, who the audience they were speaking to was, and what agenda they had for that audience as they wrote those words. And that can open up uh the Bible's contents in a way that makes it more relevant, less likely for us to take individual verses and then beat them over the head, Mm -hmm. uh, beat people over the head with them. And that happens from all theological perspectives, by the way. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just, you, I don't cite many individual verses anymore. I tend to cite meta narratives that arc across at least a chapter, hopefully across the entire book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so rare to have like one verse come out and speak in a way uh, that is appropriate to what the author was saying that resonates with 21st century Americans, for example. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this to me, I mean, this can be used as a tool by which to better convince other people, or it can be a tool to discover my own biases and and look at that reflection. Um, quick book recommendation, Royce Grunler wrote a book called Meaning and Understanding, which has been out of print for a long time, but I found it free in a PDF form on the internet, and it is uh, kind of a hermeneutic how to interpret the Bible book, except it goes through the Enlightenment and then early American shifts in philosophy and thinking and shows how, shows our biases shows how, oh, I default to a way of thinking which flowed out of this way of thinking. Um, and I found it really helpful to go, oh, Amazing. maybe I can hold this more loosely because that guy gave it to me, not God mm-hmm. gave it to me. Right. But now back to the backfire effect is the first step in understanding my own bias to recognize when I am having that reaction yeah, I mean, a, a certain mindfulness can help. I actually think in dealing with cognitive biases, community is more important than uh, your individual thought process. Wow, how does that work? Uh, you can't see all your blind spots effectively. Others see them more easily in you. 
And the people I am closest with come from, believe it or not, a pretty theologically, ideologically, and politically diverse spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, what they all share in common is the flexibility. Uh, they start with the assumption, I could be wrong about this. Yes. Um, and when you have four or five people like that in your life you talk to regularly and deeply, they help you uncover your blind spots. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if, if someone who didn't know me and my friends well, in fact, occasionally happens on the podcast, we start talking about something and then people start sending in letters like, are you angry at each other? Is the show going to keep going? <laughs> it's like, no, we're interrogating ideas. We drink beer after that. Like that's a, uh, it's, you know, th- there's no, um, there's no animosity involved in interrogating ideas. And um, I think I think the communal aspect comes first, and then the internal disciplines come next. I think that's why academics have an academy, why it happens in university settings. Um, if you try to do this all on your own, you might um, estimate yourself as having made more progress in confronting your biases than you actually have. Mm. So there you go. It comes back to community and honesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and humility, humility to believe that we might be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I mean, we're at, you know, people ask me, like, what do you believe? And I'm like, you mean like, like I have absolute confidence in? And if someone would say yes, I would say nothing. Like, I'm <laughs> basically a nihilist. Yeah. And then I just have this pragmatism <clears throat> wherein there's some ideas um, I hold loosely enough to operate, right? Like, I've always said the ultimate answer to nihilism is a city bus. Just like let it get up to 30 miles an hour, step out in the road and say, you don't exist. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) you you know what I mean? Your nihilism will end very quickly. Yeah. Um, Either because of your survival reflex or when the bus strikes you. So, um, you know, I think, but I've never felt so close to God, I've never existed so easily within community as I have since I decided I don't know anything mm. um, at all. Mm. Um, and it really, uh, that phrase, like, and I'm, I'm doing what I said people should never do, but that phrase, faith like a child, resonates with me more today than it ever has. Yeah. I was going to say, um, if I can translate what you're saying for people that it would scare. The I don't know anything, well, then that's a problem because uh, you're supposed to know these certain things. Then here's my list of essentials. I, I think faith like a child is that which I can know and that which God gave for me to know is always woefully incomplete because if mm-hmm. I expand it to the infinite of what it means to God, what he sees it as, what I see is at best a tiny piece of the truth, which is wonderful. It's great Mm. to have a little tiny glimpse, and God celebrates that as well because he gave it to me to be known. Mm. But it is always the finite version of an infinite thing. Mm. And so I accept that as being small. Mm. And children's belief is, is predicated on love and trust. Mm. not on empirical inquiry. 
um, or it, or what a, insert philosophy here, right? Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. So my my theological framework, the things I would say about God, the Spirit, Christ, the Christian tradition, the Bible, these are based on love for and trust in God, and believing that that's being reciprocated. Yes. Mm. Say, Mike, if I can uh, switch just a little bit. I'm interested in hearing what uh, the kind of interaction that you've had with audiences uh, at readings and lectures in the years since the book came out. I just saw yesterday a summary of um, a a Pew Foundation uh, religious trends survey that showed that the de-churching of America is accelerating and not solely among millennials. In fact... Uh, it's uh, among older Americans, it seems to be, the, the, the drop seems to be almost as precipitous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much that is uh, connected to the proliferation of story in modern culture, how much the balkanization of our culture as, uh, you know, our we get to choose our social groups through social networks and we get to... Um, create our own news bubble all that i don't know i don't know what's going on what are what are what are you hearing as you talk with people around the country since since finding god in the waves hit the bookshelves gosh i've probably done a hundred and twenty events since the book came out mm. um some of those were real big rooms uh, I mean, that's my audience. The de-churched and post-church mm-hmm. are who engages with my work. Yeah. Um, and I think it comes down to a few major segments. One is the the Bible fell apart for me crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, two is spiritual mentors deeply and profoundly failed morally. Yes. Um, that could be abuse, that could be infidelity, that mm-hmm. could be scandal. Mm-hmm. That's a big, big, big segment of people who are leaving church behind. Um, and then there's people for whom uh, the way the church approaches um, justice issues mm-hmm. made them feel disgusted. That could be racism, that could be LGBTQ, that could be any number of things. Um, For a while, statistically, the best predictor that someone was going to leave a church was that they accepted the theory of evolution and their church did not. Mm -hmm. That actually was a stronger predictor for someone having a faith transition than they accepted LGBT marriage and their church did not, believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Um, So that's kind of this coalition uh, and then for a lot of people, it's a mix of those things. Yeah. Um, the church, in the eyes of culture, lost its moral authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are leaving. But they're not finding something else. So what I'm discovering in my work is people leave church and become lonelier. Mm-hmm. Their community and social circles shrink. Um, And so, uh, you know, a big part of when I come to town, a bunch of people come to a church. I typically do events in churches. 
not always, but 70% of the time. People come to a church that haven't been there in years, absolute years, and they come and they have an experience, and it's not traumatizing. And it, it like, provokes um, a craving or a hunger they didn't know they had. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't think, like, I don't think it's hopeless for the church. Um, but I think the church will continue to die um, until it learns how to prioritize. Um the, the the like alliance between Christian leadership and political power is a bad one. Oh yeah. Um the the primary metric by which we judge our success being cultural battles is a bad strategy. Um the more the church engages in the least of these kind of work and ministry, uh the more I think you'll see people return and i think you know people don't like to change institutions like to change even less i think it just has to get so bad that every church is afraid they'll shut down before you'll see large-scale systemic reform in the church as as somebody who has actually stepped away from my faith what what caused me to step away from it was more of a it didn't I didn't walk away from the church per se as a um <clears throat> what happened well a very close friend of mine died mm-hmm. um very suddenly and I had a uh almost an existential crisis of just I remember pacing the sidewalk around our apartment complex and imagining that the sidewalk was was life and what I knew and the grass beyond was what I didn't know and it I had almost a panic attack standing on the sidewalk, imagining myself stepping onto the grass because I realized that I had no idea um, what moved beyond. And I, I, I tried to jump into my Bible and I talked to some of my Christian friends and I found, I found no relief there for me. Um, and uh, that's when I began to let go of things and realize that I, what I thought I knew I didn't know. Um, and... Uh, I've kind of had to just start from scratch, but um, the problems with the church are what have kind of kept me from going back because I have children now, and I don't want to bring my kid into a situation where he is told um, that a gay person is going to hell, or it's a lot of, you're saying the social issues of things like that have, um, I want to be very mindful of what I teach my children and a lot of the things that I grew up with in the church personally. And again, I'm speaking as somebody who has stepped away from, from faith. Um, I don't want to pass on. Um, I love, that's what I loved about your book was what, when I finished your book, what I wanted was a community. And I realized that that's what I had been missing. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, my wife and I have joked about starting a, a non-religious church based on the philosophy of just don't be a dick, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just be nice to each other, you know? Um, and so that's, that's kind of what's kept us at bay. Um, that's, it's, it's, I, I, I find, find it find interesting, interesting that both what you're saying, saying, Mike, and what you're saying, saying Daniel, Daniel, what people have, have left, left the church, the church over, over has, has nothing, nothing to do with, with church, church according, according to scripture. To scripture. 
and mm-hmm. what you're, you're talking, talking about, about hungering for community. community. Yes, that's all the church was like. So I, I don't. Uh, you said a large scale return. return. I feel like the church has to die at its large scale control model so that it can be reborn in a community model where people aren't getting paid. They're just meeting in living rooms. They're the D bad churches. Don't be a dick. Yeah, D bad churches. Um, of America. The coalition of D bad. Um, and, and that's why it doesn't bother or scare me. To see the decline, the decline in the institutional church is not a decline in faith necessarily, although it, it probably does represent some of that. Um, I think it's a hunger for something that's more real and more community. So mm. it's kind of exciting hearing both of what you're saying, because all of it forces real. Yeah. Mm. Well, I I find it ironic Mr. Mike, that you are now becoming this uh, pastor of the disenfranchised. Yeah, I know, right? That hurt a little bit. Stings. Uh, (laughs) You and Nate both disqualified yourselves to be initiated into the qualities that were necessary. So we've got sex addiction being the necessary inroad to be the pastor you were always supposed to be. And atheism being the inroad to be the pastor you were always supposed to be. Mm. Ha ha to both of you. <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> I was uh, I, I was at it pretty soon after the book came out, doing one of my live podcasts, and the people who were hosting me came up and said, "I don't know what to call Mike. I guess he's kind of a freelance internet pastor." <laughs> <laughs> and I like it. I was really offended, and then I laughed. Yeah, you're just a mercenary pastor. That's all. <laughs> so, uh, what's the name of the podcast? How can our listeners subscribe, Mike? And uh, there's how- two. There's the Liturgist podcast, which you can go find at theliturgist.com or search any place where podcasts are found. Um, that's a topical show uh, with an audience in the millions, um, where we take a, an issue and look at it through the lenses of science, art, and faith. And then I host by myself a show called Ask Science Mike. That's a weekly question and answer program with an audience in the hundreds of thousands. And uh, you can send questions in via asksciencemike.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking your time this morning. I love getting to throw these ideas out and see what pops out of you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. really enjoyed it. Nice. Well, we will be right back to wrap things up on the Pirate Monk Podcast. back on the pirate monk podcast so great conversation oh, i love again. talking to that guy he's he's even more fun in person than just listening to his book on my 
my iPhone. Yeah. He's... It's much more interactive. I, I can't place <laughs> yeah. how that is. But this weird. time he actually answered me when I talked. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was kind of a jerk before. Kept going like, but what about? And he just would keep going. Yes. That guy. Yeah, so what did you... I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are with how our brains get stuck in the not listening. I'm putting up walls and... The yeah. better the information, the more I'm going to resist it. What does that mean for you guys personally? I'm curious. Does it I, scare you? I'm, for me, I'm I'm challenged every day just from my four and a half year old. Um, I the I struggle to find a balance between teaching him truth and staying flexible because he his he is so malleable. He is so. He has so many different ways to approach things, and it's, and maybe it's because right now the biggest thing I'm doing is being a dad. But it's, uh, I, I look through everything through the lens of trying to set an example for him and listen to him, and let him have input, and I try to let him change my mind, uh, sometimes, when when you know when it's appropriate, and it's just. I don't know. He, he Mike didn't change my mind at all. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, a key insight for me in that conversation was the role that you know our social identity, our this kind of tribal uh, mentality, informs what we are. You know, just naturally and instinctively open to, and what we shut down around. I, I yeah, we have uh, we know somebody who is. In his own world, I guess, um, he's not all there completely, mm-hmm. and he lives with his mother, and he perpetuates these fantasies of his life mm-hmm. that he thinks he is. And um, his mother, who is by all means a very smart woman, believes a lot of the things he says. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same idea of if she lets go of that belief, if she doesn't believe that he actually knows the rapper Pitbull and my Miley Cyrus and all these things, then it, it can crumble a lot of other ideas that she has for him. Yeah. And so it's not about him actually knowing these people. It's about what that holds in place. Because if she admits that those are completely wrong, then what else is wrong and what else is different? And it starts a chain reaction that she doesn't want to face. Yeah. And it's easier to, I guess, use a story for somebody else, but I'm sure there are a million examples of that for myself, Mike, talking about personal blind spots. Yeah. It's just, what am I holding on to because it's keeping things together? Allie and I were watching last night the new Leah Remini show about Scientology, Scientology, where she's interviewing people who have made the just terrifying uh, decision to leave that universe. Yeah. How difficult it is to exit from Scientology because its belief system is so global and they are so inoculated against even entertaining the suggestion that Scientology might be wrong. And in that mindset, flexibility is is heresy. Yeah. And as I was watching the show, I thought, you know, there's parts of the church where flexibility is heresy. Mm Mm-hmm. Or you're told you're not allowed even to entertain the possibility that there might be another way of looking at things. That's the scariest right. part for me is uh, 
coming to where I am now is to finally saying out loud that I don't know what it is. It was, it was scary. Growing up, one of the, my biggest fears of, as a kid, as a child, was going to hell. Mm-hmm. And uh, to say out loud that, you know, I don't know this, you know, yeah. therefore I don't believe it, you yeah. know, was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would recommend if, if people are thinking, yeah, that's, I get that. And I think most people do. Both the last podcast with Mike, one was on certainty and why in church we're against, if you don't have certainty, it's a reflection on your faith and a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And that he went some interesting directions on the need for certainty and what that's about. And the other podcast was on why we have questions in the church that are disallowed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think this all, if we can just understand that if I have to disallow questions, it means I'm terrified of what the answer might be. Yeah. yeah. If I'm secure in what I believe, then there would there is no fear of yeah, questions. Of and Mike's a good guy to bring that together because he is science based, and there is you know you there is a provable point to things like that, and to or, br- or or I would say even where there's not a provable point, I can understand at least in part why it's not provable that I'm trying to put this category of thing like faith or God into this crucible. And mm-hmm. it's not going to work there. So I can understand why. Yeah. Okay. This is this is empirically provable stuff. These are ideas. There's different settings as far as the tools that I bring to bear on those. Yeah. Yeah. And we we can suss that out a little bit. Yeah. 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 One's for looking within. One's looking without. And it's so it it's good. Well, I'm I'm glad that. Uh, you guys enjoyed it. I've been excited for this podcast, and it's funny he brought up Capital Punishment because I believe next week Shane Claiborne will be on the show, and he has been uh, talking about justice for victims and victimizers and addressing capital punishment. So we're just jumping into really interesting waters these weeks, so look forward to that, and it will be coming up soon. But Nate, you wanted to say something about emails before we left. Yeah, gosh. We do love to hear from you. And if we neglected to say it earlier, let me correct that oversight now and tell you that you can reach us uh, through the power of Google by sending an email to piratemuckpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, we have come to the end of another fascinating hour. It's been really, really good to be with you again, Aaron, and especially special for me to have my son Daniel with us today. Is that, well, how cool. And five minutes to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so until next week, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. No, oh, I'm Daniel. Yeah. yeah. I won't be here next week. Okay. But Aaron and I will, and we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast.